victory. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Today we are in Genesis chapter 4. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 6. As we move into Genesis chapter 4, we're going to begin to expand our horizons. We have looked at the last three chapters of the relationship between God and two humans. And now we are going to see how their actions, their choices in Genesis chapter 3 begin to affect the world around them. And so we pick up today in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and to Erod was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Mahushael, and Mahushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. 
At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Let us pray. To the God above who is gracious, we do thank you for your grace. We do thank you for your wisdom. As we look to your word, we ask that you give us wisdom. Give us wisdom to see you. Give us wisdom to see ourselves and to see our needs before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at how sin had entered the world and we are almost left with the question, what's next? God has given his judgment upon humanity and upon Satan, but where do we go from here? Adam and Eve had been given the command to fill and to subdue the earth and even in their sinfulness, even in the punishment that God put upon Adam and Eve, they were still given the blessing of being able to fill and to subdue the earth, but What is life going to look like outside of the garden? Genesis 4 gives us the answer to the question in the news is good and bad. The good news is that the the humanity will still be able to multiply. Humanity will still be able to produce and they will give us art and cities and animal husbandry. But the bad news is that humanity will also give us envy and murder and tyranny. And so today we will look at the post-fall world and how it is marked by sin. Sin in relationship to self-reliance, sin in relationship to worship, and sin in relationship to culture. First, Genesis 4, as we look at sin and self-reliance, Genesis 4 opens up with a reminder of God's faithfulness. We saw at the end of Genesis 1 when God was creating humanity that he blessed them. And that blessing was the ability to fill the earth. That blessing was the ability to produce life from humanity. And we see that God is faithful to that blessing here in Genesis 4, chapter 1, where Adam and Eve conceive and have two children, or at least two children. But focusing specifically on Cain and Abel in this chapter as we begin. But we also see in the midst of this blessing, the sin of self-reliance begin to creep into humanity. Look at Eve's words there. In verse one, she says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, with the help of is not in the original language. It basically just says with the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And the focus here is not on the Lord or the help that the Lord gives to Eve. The focus of the sentence is the word I. Basically, what Eve is saying is, yes, the Lord has blessed us. But I, myself, have brought forth this new human and named him Cain. And we see that Eve has this focus here on self-reliance. We'll see that as Seth is born, that the focus changes. But right now we see that Eve is, is almost relying upon herself as she did when she made the choice between obeying God or yielding to the temptation of the serpent in Genesis 3. But this self-reliance begins to be transferred not only to her, but on to her or her, um, excuse me, her children. Lost myself there for just a second. Abel and Cain, we are told here, are do different acts of work within the creation that God has placed them. Abel is a shepherd and Cain is a farmer. But we find out that as we go through that Abel is actually insignificant to the story because the story focuses upon Cain. 
And we're also given a clue that Abel is insignificant because the word that is translated Abel here is the same word we see creep up often in the book of Ecclesiastes. The word that is, depending upon your translation, is translated either meaningless or futility or vanity within the book of Ecclesiastes is basically the name that Abel is given. And so we're given a clue that his life is going to be meaningless here, even though he worships God well, according to the way that God has described. But Cain is the focus here, and we see that Cain actually relies upon himself. We're going to look in a few minutes that he defines how he worships God. We're going to see in a few minutes that even though God tells him to look after himself when it comes to sin, Cain takes matters into his own hands. What does Cain do? Well, Cain is rejected. His, his, his sacrifice is rejected, and he's angry about it. And God comes to him and he says, hey, be careful. Do what is right and you'll be accepted. Or if you don't do what is right, you continue to be self-reliant. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin has its desire and it desires to consume you is basically what the words mean there. Peter in our New Testament reading picks this up when he's talking to the young man at the church to which he writes. Be self-controlled because sin, he expands upon the picture here. Sin is like a lion roaring and prowling. And that lion is not there to protect you. That lion is there to destroy you. And that's the warning that God gives to Abel or to Cain here. Now, how is sin or Satan personified as sin? How is it creeping? How is it prowling? How is it seeking to devour us? Joel Beakey uh, brings up six ways in which Satan seeks to devour us. Number one, Satan is a very intellectually powerful spiritual being. You know, I can tempt you. Let's, let's say you're on a diet. And I can tempt you with a cheesecake and say, come on, you can, you can help me eat this cheesecake. I can tempt you with something external and you can physically push it away. But Satan is a spiritual being. He is not a physical being. And he can put the temptation directly into your mind. And in fact, we'll see that or we'll look at here in a moment that his suggestions, uh, he can twist them to make us think that they're our idea. But he's a very powerful spiritual being. Satan has been prowling for a long, long time. And as as Beaky says, Satan may be old, but he isn't weak. He is very experienced at temptation. He knows how to tempt humanity where their weakness is. And he knows your weaknesses sometimes better than we know them. And he can tempt us where we are weak. We get tired, you know, if I'm trying to get you to break your diet, I might get tired of doing that after a while if you continue to tell me no. Satan doesn't get tired at tempting people to sin. Satan has an army. He's not in this alone. If he did happen to get tired, he has a countless number of demons that are there. And they are just as passionate for sin as he is. Satan can make us think that these temptations are our own ideas. His evil suggestions are found in our mind, and we might think that these temptations are something that we think about ourselves without any hint from him. And finally, Satan can tempt our reason to agree with the temptation. Well, goodness, I deserve to have that piece of cheesecake because I've been good 
on my diet for the last three days. I deserve that piece of cheesecake. Or I deserve whatever it is that Satan has placed in front of me. And so Satan, God warns Cain. He says, Cain, Satan is there. You may think you know what is right, but Satan is there twisting your reason. Satan is there prowling to devour you. And instead of listening to God's warning, Cain says, I'm going to handle this situation myself. And he murders his brother. We have gone from Adam and Eve blaming one another for their sin, seeking to uh, uh, reputational homicide here to actual homicide, fratricide, as Cain takes Abel out into the fields and murders his brother. And God expels Cain. God punishes him from the land. And Cain complains in the midst of this punishment that he will be hounded and pursued for the murder of Abel. Now, the question is raised here, and it's raised later on whenever Cain, we're told, lays with his wife and has another child of his own. Where do these other people that are going to hound Cain come from? Where does his wife come from? And, you know, honestly, we don't know the answer to that question. Why do we not know the answer to that question? Because Scripture doesn't tell us. Now, we can guess, we can conjecture. You know, DNA was pure. The closer you were to the, to the first man and woman, and God had not established the law that incest was against the rules, so that might have been an option there. God could have made Adam and Eve very, very fertile there at the beginning. And, you know, we do know that Adam lived for several hundred years. There could have been many, many children out there that they had produced. But ultimately, we don't know. It's just conjecture. And you know why we don't know? I said it's not in the scriptures. Why did God not put it in the scriptures? Because ultimately it's not important. What's important is what God does give us. Now, I had to explain this to my, to my Sunday school class a couple weeks ago. When I say it's not important, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about it. God has given us brains for a reason. And God has made them work for a reason so that we can think about things. Our faith is not blind. Our faith is not in nothing. We have a historical record of God's saving work in our world. But when it comes to what is not specifically revealed within Scripture, we need to limit our conjecture. We need to limit our thoughts on that to the parameters that God has given us. God's salvation is still very valid, even though we don't know who Cain's wife was or where she came from. We don't know where all these other people came from that Cain would have been would have been scared of, but we know they were there and he was scared of them. But what's important is that we have this interaction between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And right now it looks like the seed of the woman has lost. Right now it looks like the seed of the serpent is victorious and has crushed the head and not just the heel of the seed of the woman. And then it's also important that we see the seed of the woman is finally preserved and we see the ultimate seed of the woman in Christ. As we see that, yes, his heel was crushed. He suffered a fatal blow, but it was not the final blow because he rose again from the dead. And in suffering that fatal blow of the crushing of the striking of his heel, he crushed the head of the serpent. And as that serpent reappears in the book of Revelation, there's a wound on its head. There's a wound on the head of the great dragon that comes back, the serpent grown up at the end of the world. The serpent grown up when Christ returns and judges him finally and shackles him and places him in the lake of fire. That's what's important for us to remember is that this is the history of God's redemption of humanity. 
And if God chooses to leave out details, we can trust that he is good and wise and that those details are not things for us to stress over. Those details are not things for us to fret over. The important thing is that God's plan of redemption survives throughout all of Scripture. So God puts this mark upon Cain and he begins to build a city. Now, how does that show us self-reliance? Why do we build cities these days? Well, we build cities because a group of people have settled in a certain area and we have local government things that need to be done and it's easier to do within our system of government here in America to to go ahead and declare that area a city. But you didn't build cities for those reasons during the time of the Israelites who would have been the original audience of this book. You built a city for protection. What did God promise to do to Cain? To protect him. What does Cain do? Once again, he relies upon himself and he takes protection into his own hands by building the city and putting a wall around it. And we have that temptation as well today. Yes, God has given us wisdom in different situations in our lives, but he expects us to use that wisdom, that knowledge, that intelligence in a way that glorifies him, in a way that honors him, and in a way that conforms to his rules and to his glory. And so we see in this portion of Cain's life and in Eve's life that self-reliance is something that gets us in trouble. Oftentimes we have to make decisions in our lives. Oftentimes we choose between a good, two good options in our lives. Do we pray over those things or do we just go ahead and say, all right, I'm just going to choose this. Do we bathe that decision process in prayer? Or do we say, you know what, I'm smart enough to handle things on my own. I'm going to do it myself. You know, it may not get into too much trouble whenever we have two good choices to make. But what about when it's a decision or a choice between a good and a bad? Things that God has said are against his law and against his rule and against the way he has designed this world gets us into huge trouble when we say, you know what, I'm smarter than God and I'm going this direction, even though his law says to go this way. We get ourselves into huge trouble when we do things like that. And, and Cain did that as well. But we also see sin and how it affects worship. We go back to closer to the beginning, verse two and three. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. Why did God reject Cain's sacrifice and not Abel's? Well, it's there in the language. Some people have surmised that it was because Abel brought the blood sacrifice and and, and Cain just brought some of the some fruit, some some plants, some corn. But scripture doesn't say that. The language there is is clear that it's the the attitude. Cain's heart attitude versus Abel's heart attitude. What does it say about Cain? What did he bring? He brought some of his fruit. What about Abel? Abel brought some, but he brought some of the firstborn of his flock. It's written almost in a sense that Abel brought the best. Cain brought what was left over. 
If we were to say this today, it'd be something like Abel was well rested and worked his schedule so that his time at worship was the best he could offer to God. And Cain showed up whenever he wasn't too tired or hadn't stayed up too late the night before. Or this, Abel brought the first check written out of his paycheck every week. And Cain brought whatever was left over after the bills were paid and the fun was had. The problem here was Cain's attitude that he just, you know, I'm just showing up and I'm bringing whatever's left over at the end of the week. Cain said that, whereas Abel said, hey, this is the first fruits. This is the best that I have to offer to God. And God wants our best. God doesn't want leftovers. He wants our best. Whether it's our time, whether it's our talent, whether it's our money, he wants the first fruits. And so sin crept into the attitude of worship. To where we just give God what's left over or do we give him the best? And finally, the relationship of the world and sin. So Cain moves out of this picture as he begins to have children. And what we find is that as Cain's descendants grow, they establish good things. They establish culture. They establish music, they establish art, they establish the art of animal husbandry and herding, and they establish metalworking and metallurgy. And none of these things are bad in and of themselves. It's just how are they used? Think about the Israelites as they come out of Egypt. That's who this book was written to. The book of Genesis was written to these Israelites who had just come out of Egypt, had just been freed from slavery. They're going to the promised land and they're going to find cities that have been established. And inside these cities are musical instruments. Inside these cities are blacksmith shops. Inside these cities and outside these cities are animals that need to be raised and herded. And what we what they're told here is that these things are part of having dominion over the earth. Music is good. Lyrics are horrible a lot of times, but music is good, especially when it's put together in a very beautiful way, a way that expresses God's beauty, the way that expresses God's order, in a way that expresses the glory of God. Music by itself is pretty. It's when we begin to take it and twist it and and put words to the music or try to take the beauty out of music and just make it a random collection of notes. That it, that it begins to lose its goodness. Metalworking is a good thing. Cities are a good thing. Culture is a good thing, but they can be twisted. And we see that in the life of Lamech, the Lamech of Cain. We will run into another Lamech next week as we look um, toward Noah's um, ancestors. But Lamech here, he comes, to, he's in the city. He takes two wives breaking God's plan for marriage is found at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Husband and wife, one husband, one wife. And then he takes Cain's promise from God and he twists it as well. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech is avenged 77 times. Cain was avenged by God. God put his perfect justice on anybody that murdered Cain because they murdered him. Lamech in his own self-reliance says, I'll take vengeance upon myself. What does God say about vengeance in Deuteronomy? He says, vengeance is mine. I'm the one who repays. But Lamech says, hey, if, if God punished somebody for murdering Cain seven times, then if somebody insults me, I get to punish them 77 times. 
Or if somebody just kind of wounds me in a battle, maybe gives me a black eye, I get to punish them. I get to kill them 77 times. Lamech instituted tyranny. What's one of the great problems we have in our culture today? It's the fear to speak out because somebody might come along and squash us if we do. Freedom of speech is a swiftly disappearing freedom that we have. Because if you don't give the right speech, then the full power and might of our culture comes and lands upon you and squishes you. That's what Lamech's saying. If you don't agree with me in my words, I'll destroy you. If you don't agree with me in my policies, I will destroy you. It's called tyranny. It's called authoritarianism. And unfortunately, in our broken, sinful world, it is what normally grows out of democracy. It's normally the transition from one to the next system of government is tyrannical authoritarianism. And we see that self-reliance grows. Sin grows throughout an entire culture, throughout an entire society. It started with Adam and Eve being reliant upon themselves And as they had children and their children had children, those children had children. And as humanity grew, we're told in Genesis chapter six that every thought was wicked all the time. (laughs) Humanity does some good things. But when they're broken by sin, those good things can be used to abuse. Bruce Waltke says this, he says, Abel signifies insignificance. But by faith, he offers an acceptable sacrifice Enosh, signifying weakness, by faith offers an acceptable prayer. These two are the expression of true religion. And ironically, when we are weak in ourselves, we are strong in the Lord. Eve actually learns her lesson. Look at the last couple verses of chapter 4 here. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, Seth, saying, and listen to this compared to verse 1. God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call in the name of the Lord. We have this picture that that Eve kind of looked at what happened in Cain's life and more than likely what happened in Lamech's life as well as long as people were living during this time. And she realized that the sin of self-reliance causes problems. And it started with her. But when she has Seth, she said, did she say, I have brought forth a man? She says, no, God has granted. God has given. God has done it. And it's interesting that when Seth has his child, he names him Enosh because Enosh is the Hebrew word for weakness. And what does he do in his weakness? He calls upon the name of the Lord. And we see the two halves of right worship. Abel brings the best of his sacrifice. Abel brings the best of his flock. And he gives that acceptable sacrifice. Enosh gives acceptable prayer in the midst of his weakness. How do we cry out to God in our weakness? Psalm 142 verses 1 and 2 say, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him and before him I tell my trouble. Paul said that he had 
cried out to God three times because of this affliction that he had. He called it his thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it is. Once again, it's one of those important things that we're not told. But what does he say? He said, I cried out to God three times to remove this thorn from my flesh. And God taught me that in my weakness, his grace is sufficient. God doesn't work through the strong. God doesn't work through the loud. God doesn't work through the powerful. God works through the weak who understand that when we cry out, we cry to him. And we worship him. We worship him with our best. And we do that through the grace that Christ has given us from the cross. Because in the midst of his ultimate weakness, as his heel was being crushed, as that fatal blow was falling upon him upon the cross. He crushed the serpent. How can how do we have victory over the lion that prowls and wait for us, waits for us? We admit that we're weak and we can't defeat the lion and that left to our own devices, we will fail every single time. And yet God gives us the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to persevere. And we give him our best. We worship him well and we cry out to him in the midst of that. When you are tempted, what's your first response? Mine is typically to go, oh, I'm not going to succumb. I'm not going to yield to this temptation. Man, I've got this. I've got this. I can I can be victorious. What should be my first response in the midst of temptation? Lord, I can't do this. Help me. Do it for me. Make me more like you. Make me rely upon you so that when I worship you, I can give you my best. So that when I worship you, I can not just come and seek forgiveness, but I can come to worship and to praise. Give me strength. And he will answer that prayer for us. We talk about, you know, God will not give us more than we can bear. Well, God will give us a whole lot more than we can bear, especially when it comes to temptation. Because he's seeking to teach us to rely upon him and to call upon the name of the Lord and not rely upon ourselves. Let's pray. God, you are great. You are worthy of praise. And you are more powerful than we are. Lord, we can't live this life on our own. We are like Enosh. We are marked by weakness. If left to our own devices, we would fail every single time we were tempted. And so, Lord, we desperately need your strength. We desperately need your power so that we might stand before you. Give us the strength to call upon you. Give us the strength to seek and to worship you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.